Isaiah chapter number 40 tonight, Isaiah chapter 40. Thank you for the singing and hearing songs about faith tonight and, and then that song re referring to Mary at the feet of Jesus in Luke chapter number 11 and verse number 39. She sat at the feet of Jesus and heard His word. In contrast to her sister Martha who is cumbered about with much serving. She's the one who went to Jesus. There still was at least a relationship with the Lord, and, and she beckoned that her sister help her. And Jesus challenged, rebuked Martha for being anxious and troubled, careworn and troubled about things. That's what happens when we get away from a real, living, experiential relationship with Jesus saturated with the Word of God, we become anxious and careworn with things. And Jesus told Martha, but one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. He was saying to Martha, you've gotten distracted. You ever been distracted? Distracted driving is dangerous. Distracted discipling is dangerous. And he's calling Mary back to that single, undivided, deliberate, purposeful focus upon Jesus. And I think the study of the Word of God and going through and seeing, being reminded of its power, being reminded of its authority can help us so that we can see that this is where we put our faith, this is what we base our practice upon, and we're in a good place because this is what Jesus himself did. He rested upon the authority of the Bible. And uh, so Isaiah chapter number 40, let's uh, stand and let's look at beginning in verse 6. We'll look at a few verses here to, to launch into uh, tonight a topical message. But I want us to turn the corner now and begin to look at some practical things. And um, messages to come, we're going to look at just how to study the Bible. And looking at uh, what would be a way in which to read the Bible. And how does the Bible say we ought to read it and study it. And, and um, we'll look at some of these things on a practical aspect of, of the Word of God. Verse number 6 of Isaiah 40. The voice said, cry. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it, surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Tonight I want to preach on the value of God's word. We're going to look at some metaphors in the Bible that the Bible gives of itself just in simple, simple fashion tonight to remind us of the great value of God's Word. Let's look at it, shall we? Please be seated. The Bible is accurate. The Bible is accurate archaeologically. The Bible is accurate geographically, historically, systematically scientifically, prophetically, and it is miraculous in that it is life-changing. 
He was written over a span of 1,500 years by more than 40 different authors or writers spanning three continents, and yet it is a perfect book in its accuracy. Now you try to apply that to any other book, any religious book, any secular book, and you'll not find that kind of accuracy. James Montgomery Boyce, who's in heaven now, preacher and commentator, he said, inerrancy is not the most critical issue facing the church today. The most serious issue, I believe, is the Bible's sufficiency. A lot of people do not believe it to be relevant. It's, it's not sufficient for everything that I'm going through. J.I. Packer said, our aim in studying the Godhead must be to know God himself better. Isn't that the same thing we're hearing Blackaby say in the Experiencing God book? Packer goes on to say, our concern must be to enlarge our acquaintance, not simply with the doctrine of God's attributes, but with the living God whose attributes they are, and that is knowing God. And that's taken from his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer. You know, pictures are powerful. From still photos to motion pictures, they paint gripping images in our minds. And God's Word is likened to many a picture in the Bible. And I want to give seven uh, loaded metaphors of the Holy Scriptures. Spurgeon once said, Old friends, if I did not believe in the infallibility of Scripture... The absolute infallibility of it from cover to cover, I would never enter this pulpit again. See, the Word of God is inerrant. It is incapable of error. It's without error. And therefore, by necessity, it's invincible. The Word of God is absolutely pure. And because of that, it is absolutely powerful. The Bible is like a beautiful diamond that has many different cuts. And when you hold it to the light and you can turn it, you can see the light shine through and that beauty reflects and refracts the light of each different side and angle. And there's no one symbol that can fully communicate the whole, the entirety of the Bible. And so that's why I believe there are many different photos and pictures and metaphors that were given. It requires many, many different analogies even to try to put its arm around the totality of the invincibility and power of the inerrant Word of God. But we're going to try tonight because they're in the Bible. So I want you to see, first of all tonight, the Word of God is described to us as a seed that reproduces. A seed that reproduces. Take your Bibles and go to 1 Peter chapter number 1. 1 Peter 1. It's one of the things when you're not in a book study, you've got to turn to the pages, you've got to turn to the passages. And, and like when we're in a book study, we stay in that same place and we have supplementary verses. But when we're not doing so, I don't want us to miss the significance of the point that's being made. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 23. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the, what's the phrase? Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. The Word of God is described as a seed that 
reproduces. John 6, 63, the flesh profits nothing. It's the spirit that quickeneth. Luke chapter 8, we find the description of the Bible, the Word of God, being that also of a seed. See, a perishable seed can only produce a life after its own kind. We all know that. Apple seeds simply do not produce trucks. It's just not going to happen. It can only produce apple trees. And there's a fundamental principle in life, and that is like produces like. A supernatural life only comes from a seed that is living and enduring. It'd be easier to produce oak trees from planting marbles than it would be for someone to be saved without the planting of this imperishable seed, the Word of God, into their hearts. And so it is in our Christian walk, in our sanctification, or in ministry. If you sow, you're going to reap what you sow. And if you sow a worldly ministry, we're going to reap a worldly church. If we sow a secular, um, feel-good message, we're going to reap that in our church. If you sow secular humanism, pop psychology, worldly trends, religious tradition, corporate kind of leadership, as far as the corporate world scene, cultural ideologies, philosophical thoughts, personal experiences, political commentary, then what we're going to end up reaping is an unconverted church membership or a worldly group of people not much different than the country club. But if you sow the living and the enduring Word of God under the truth of the presence of God and the authority of God, then you can find the seeds to germinate. And what we'll have is a regenerated church membership and a revived church. Spurgeon said, I would rather speak five words out of this book than 50,000 of the philosophers. Why? Because you're going to reap what you sow. It's a seed. The Word of God is described as a seed. What does a seed do? It, uh, what does a seed do? It reproduces, and it's to reproduce what it is. And what is it? It's life. It's a life-giving book. If we want revivals, we must revive our reverence for the Word of God. And if we want conversions, we must put out God's word into people's hearts and in our, our uh, gospel witness and, and our conversations. Less of us, more of God. That's the answer. Less of us, more of God. Everywhere Jesus went, he used and he operated in the word of God. Jesus could have said things just like this in his answer, his rebuttal to people. He could have said, well, the father and I, we had this discussion millions of years ago. You weren't around and we settled this. Or he could have said, because I said so, that's why. But what he did do was, was something that you and I can do and he referred back to the authority of the scriptures. And yes, he's speaking of himself. Yes, he's the author. And yes, the scriptures speak of him. But he was doing what we can do and that is rely upon the seed of the word of God, the authority. A great example of Jesus operating in the realm of the word of God was when John the Baptist was put in prison. Now think with me. 
Before this, and I've been thinking about John the Baptist for a little while, so he's been coming up in just some of the sermons because of just various nuances of his life, as, and it just seems to come out in an illustration. But think about this. When John was put in prison, before John was put in prison, he was absolutely convinced that Jesus was the Lamb of God. You remember that? He's preaching and and he sees Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And so John the Baptist gave up his own ministry, resigned his own ministry of sorts, and, and he became one of the disciples of Jesus. And he said that I must decrease while he must increase. Then after being imprisoned by Herod, time passed and John sent his disciples to Jesus with a question. Luke chapter 7 and verse 19. He says, are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? John the Baptist. What's happened? Well, he's in a dungeon and doubt sets in. Have you ever been in a dungeon of doubt? Discouragement sets in. Because of the circumstances of life. Now I want you to see this because I think it's very helpful. Look at what Jesus did in response to the question. Jesus said in Luke chapter 7 and verse 21. Well, let's just, let's go over there, can we? Let's turn to it. It's, it's, It's really inconsistent if we talk about the power of the word and not look at the power of the word. So let's take a look at Luke chapter 7. I think this is helpful. I hope this will help you in your life as well as your dealings with others. Luke chapter 7. And so in verse number 19 is where the disciples come and they said, Are you the one or should we expect somebody else? In other words, John the Baptist is saying, Did I miss it? Is, is, this, is this right? And here's what Jesus' response was. Notice in verse 21. And in that same hour, he cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits, and unto many that were blind, he gave sight. Then Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way, telling these messengers from John, Go your way and tell John what things ye have seen and heard. How that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. To the poor the gospel is preached. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. Then after John's disciples left, Jesus turned to the crowd and in Matthew chapter number 11, he gives an incredible, you don't have to turn over there, but he gave an incredible compliment to the crowd, not to John's disciples. Now it seemed to me that it would go the other way around. John's in a dungeon of doubt. He sends disciples, messengers, go ask Jesus. Just just ask him, am I missing it? Did I I blow it somewhere? How how did I get off track? And Jesus hears their question. He turns around and does incredible miracles. And he goes back to the messengers and says, 
and, and says to them, now you go tell John just what you saw. And then Jesus turns to the multitude and here's what he says in Matthew 11, verse 11 through 15. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of woman, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if ye will receive it, this Elias which was from to come, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Now, what is Jesus saying? Jesus turned to the multitude and said, There's no greater who has ever walked upon this earth, born of woman, other than John the Baptist. But he didn't tell that to the messengers. He told that to the rest of the crowd. It would have seemed that Jesus would have told the messengers, you go tell John the Baptist what I think of him. But that's not what he did. As John sat in prison, I'm sure discouragement crept in. And again, it's interesting that this compliment by Jesus about no prophet being greater than John, that's a lot to say with all the prophets in times of old. He gave that message to the multitudes, not to John's disciples, to take back to John. Why? Now don't miss this. The answer lies in what Jesus did send back to John. They waited for the answer. Jesus performed the miracles. He gave the blind their sight. The lame could walk. The cure was given to those who had leprosy. He restored the ears of the deaf. He even raised the dead and he preached the good news to the poor. What was it that was happening? This is the message Jesus sent to encourage John while in prison in a dire, discouraged, very down time in his life. See, Remember at the beginning of John's ministry, the Pharisees came to John. They asked if he was the Christ. And in John chapter 1 and verse 23, John replied with the words of Isaiah the prophet. He said, I am the voice of the one calling in the desert. I am the voice of the one crying in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. And it was a direct quote from Isaiah. John found himself in the scriptures and he knew that what Isaiah was preaching 500 years before he was born had to do with him. John knew his mission was to prepare the way for the Messiah from this prophetic writing. John was familiar with scripture and especially knew what Isaiah had written about Christ. And while John's disciples waited, waited for an answer to take back to John. And Jesus performed miracles. What was it Jesus was doing? Jesus was doing everything that Isaiah said the Messiah would do in front of them. And he used what Isaiah said in Isaiah 35 verses 5 and 6 as the way to encourage John in prison. Jesus performed every one of the things that Isaiah said in Isaiah 35 that the Messiah would do. 
He did these things in the presence of the messengers. He raised the dead as the final proof in case there was any doubt as to who he was. The takeaway point is this. Jesus did not, even if the messengers heard the compliment that Jesus gave, Jesus did not put weight upon the compliments to encourage John. It might have encouraged the multitudes. However, Jesus used the word of God to encourage and to confirm to John the answer to his question. He pulled out all the stops to ensure John had what he needed to survive in prison, locked up for Christ. Jesus wanted to reassure John that it wasn't in vain, that Jesus was truly the Messiah. John knew what Isaiah said the Messiah was to do. And Jesus, in front of the messengers, did everything that Isaiah said the Messiah would do. And they went right back and they said, John, you didn't miss a thing. He is who he said he is. How do you know? How do you boys know? And they, all they had to say was, because the Bible said so. Amen. You want to find encouragement? You get back into the Bible. You don't have encouragement. You don't have your Bible. Amen. And if Jesus is going to look for no other plea, no other argument, then the final, the only full authority found in the written word of God, then why should you look somewhere else? That's an amazing, amazing approach of the Lord Jesus Christ. If Jesus used the scriptures as the full authority on the matter, then planting God's word in our hearts is critical for success in life. Everything you and I need is found in the word of God. The trick is getting the seed inside where it can germinate and grow. Number two, the Bible is a lamp that shines. It's a lamp that shines. Psalm 119, 105. My word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. In 2 Peter chapter 1, turn over there please. 2 Peter chapter 1. Some of the great verses on the authority of the Word of God is 2 Peter chapter number 1. Peter writes in verse number 17, For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. You know what he's referring to? He's referring to the, the mount of transfiguration where Jesus Christ, he was able to uh, pull back the curtain, so to speak, and the Shekinah glory of God was witnessed. And Peter said, we heard the voice. We saw this. We heard this. I didn't see it. I didn't hear it. I could only imagine and envision what that must have been like. But what does Peter go on to say? Verse 19. We, those included who were not there, who didn't hear the voice, who didn't see the spectacular Shekinah glory of God, we have also, listen, 
a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, no, no, but however it was the holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. No matter how tremendous that scene was on the mountain, of transfiguration, Peter says, if you have a Bible, you have a more sure word of authority and the very word of Almighty God than what I saw and what I heard there on the mountain. Why? Because this Bible is a lamp that shines. Peter says we live in a very dark world and it's becoming darker by the moment. There are many dangers that threaten the safety of those who are going to travel that narrow road that Jesus talked about. And we need light to shine the way so we can see the dangers in our way. We can be so gullible. Even the the best well-meaning people can be so gullible if we base decisions just simply upon what I like and don't like. We need the light of God's Word. The Word of God is a lamp giving necessary light to all of its travelers. The lamp is not an option for a few of us. It's necessary for every one of us. The light shines brightest in the darkest hours of the night. And this light has never shined brighter than it is shining at this very hour in the lives of people who are embracing its authority. How often I've heard people say something like, oh, I see it now. I see it. The light is shining as I open the Word of God. And as people begin to see with a Christian worldview, with a biblical lens, they can see all around them and they can see with clarity. Why? Because the Bible is a light-giving device that that has been given to us by God. We can see with light shining in the dark hour. The emphasis here of the light is not necessarily upon how it affects our head. It's not how it affects our heart as much as how it affects our feet. It's presupposed that it's already affected our head and our heart. But we need to make decisions based upon steps, based upon our direction, based upon the clarity and the authority of the inerrant Word of God. Infallible guidance. Number three. The Word of God is a mirror that reveals. It's a mirror that reveals. Go over to James. James chapter number one, probably the most familiar passage when it speaks of this metaphor of the Bible as a mirror. A mirror does what? It enables you to see yourself as you truly are. A mirror tells it like it is. It gives a true reflection and revelation of what is on the inside. We never truly know ourselves until we read the Word of God. Look at James 1 and verse 23. For if any man be a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he's likened to a man beholding his natural face in a glass, for he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. 
But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful here, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. You know, as I read this book, it feels like someone's reading my heart. And it wasn't cheering me on and applauding me and flattering me. No, this book, the Word of God, instead has given me the accurate picture within my soul. It tells me who I really am. It tells me what I really need. It tells me who really matters and who's most important. There have been times I've stood out in the lobby after a service and and then I've seen in my peripheral vision maybe a, a shy individual man who has come with his wife and his wife maybe was the one prodding him to come and He's waiting for everyone to kind of leave or for a moment to approach me privately. And, and I've had more than once a man say something like this. Have you been talking to my wife about me? And I remind him, no, no, I haven't. But the word of God is a mirror that reveals yourself to you. In fact, it knows you better than you know yourself. It's a mirror that reveals, cherish that. But number four, it's a food. The Word of God is a food that nourishes. Several here, and, and there is a list, and I'm only going to mention a couple of the honey. The Bible refers to itself as honey. But another thought, I just take the familiar ones. Back over to 1 Peter chapter number 2. And uh, you're just there in Peter, so only a couple pages away in 1 Peter 2 and verse 2. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. Now, I want to tell you, this is a very interesting verse. And this stood out to me years ago when I was in getting into evangelism and coming across all kinds of theology. And um, when it comes to giving the gospel, you'd find that, people would come out of the woodworks with their theology that would try to, uh, to, to rebuttal this matter of the gospel, preaching the gospel, giving invitations. Um, a lot of people would, would get upset, and usually it was within the Calvinistic Reformed crowd. And there is all kind, and again, when you deal with Calvinism, it's like a wet fish because you've got one point, two point, three point, four point, and five pointers. And depending upon which point someone held on to, and someone could claim points and not even know what those are, just like many Americans are considering themselves to be genuine Americans and don't even know the Constitution that undergirds being an American. And there are many who will say, well, I'm a, I'm a two pointer, I'm a three pointer, I'm a four pointer. I'm a five-pointer. And, um, and one of the things about Calvin, Calvinism is the soteriological strength. It's the salvation arm of, not salvation army, but it's the salvation strain of reformed theology. And so what, what is often said is, is that a person, if they're saved, they are going to persevere no matter what. They're going to persevere. They cannot help but grow. And if they don't grow, if they don't persevere, then they were never saved. Dr. Childs and I were talking well, just the other day uh, at the other service 
And, and he had somebody come to him in, in, many years ago, and, and he talked about this. Um, the, uh, it was a preacher's wife that I think it was that was pregnant and, and talking about this is a great thing. And the preacher was expressing, we're not so sure if we're excited about this. Because what if the baby is not one of the elect? Jim Van Gelderen that you've heard preach here, he was preaching at a camp many years ago that I was at as well. And he had a couple that he knew come up to him. He was a youth pastor and youth pastor's wife came up to him, had tears in their eyes and saw Dr. Jim begin to counsel and she was with child and he was congratulating and the young preacher said, but we're very concerned. What if the baby's not one of the elect? See, what that is is the damnable heresy of Calvinism. I want to tell you what the Bible says, not what Calvin... You know Jesus was before Calvin? And you know Calvin had nothing to do with the writing of Scripture, and no one ever becomes a Calvinist by reading the Bible. Nobody upon nobody. I've never heard ever anybody read the Bible and say, I think I'll be a Calvinist. They become a Calvinist by reading John Calvin or somebody else who has read John Calvin. I say, let your friends be the Word of God. It'll never lead you astray. And, and what happens so often is that people will use these things because it makes sense. But the truth is, the Bible teaches, whosoever will can call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Whosoever will. Whosoever. That's a hard word. Maybe we should change versions of the Bible to get a better understanding. You don't need another version to understand. Whosoever. Yeah. Especially when it comes to dessert. Whosoever wants dessert. And we all understand that one. Whoever wants to go to McDonald's, all the kids understand that one. Well, in that doctrine of Calvinism, again, is the perseverance of the saints. And so they will take the idea, if you're saved, and you can know you're saved, if you do these things. Now, the danger with that is, not everyone does the right things all the time. If you did, we wouldn't need revival. And many Calvinists do not believe in revival. Because if you need revival, it states that there must be some carnality. And many Calvinists struggle with the idea of carnality because if you're carnal for too long, then probably we're not saved. And they struggle. I'm telling you, when you start twisting and resting the scriptures, it's just a 24-hour job to stay. It's like lying. You're going to go down the path of lying. It's a 24-hour job to stay with that. The Bible nowhere teaches that as a child of God, you will persevere to determine your salvation. The Bible does teach, however, when you call upon the name of the Lord, you are preserved forever. But then there's a responsibility in your sanctification. And 1 Peter 2 and verse 2 is one of those. As newborn babes, this is an imperative. It's a command. Desire the sincere milk of the word of God. Why does he command it? Is because it's not automatic. You can be saved and be satisfied with the fountain of the world and not have a desire for the milk of God's word. It's not automatic. It is not automatic growth. There's not automatic salvation. There's not automatic growth after salvation. 
We need the sincere, we need the pure, unadulterated Word of God. See, you're always, he's saying, you're always to be um, nurturing that craving for the Word of God like a baby craves milk. You're to have a singular, dominant thirst for the Word of God. No one's spiritual development will advance beyond their intake of the Word of God. None of us will live up to all the Word of God that comes into us, but none of us will advance beyond the measure of the Word of God that is flowing into us like milk. The way you and I remain faithful in our pursuit of God is by God's enabling grace, but it's through the Word of God, the milk. It's also, when speaking of food, it is referred to as meat. Go over to Hebrews. It's still in the same vicinity here, the same neighborhood. Turn a couple corners at Hebrews chapter number 5. Right before James, Hebrews chapter number 5. And you find the writer here talking about the marks of spiritual immaturity. In Hebrews chapter 5 and verse number 11 of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. He begins, he's wanting to explain about this heavenly priesthood of Jesus Christ. That, that's not going to be a real trite lesson. But he's not sure that the readers are ready for what he has to teach. And he says the problem is not that the teacher is dull, but that the hearers are dull. You know that the word dull in Hebrews 5 and verse 11, the same Greek word is found in Hebrews 6 and verse 12, except the King James writers, they used a different English word for the exact same Greek word. There they use the word slothful, lazy. Lazy, dull, slothful hearers. Would that include sleeping when preaching is taking place? Would it include crossing your arms on the outside and on the inside? Would it include, I'm not paying attention because I've been offended? It refers to a condition of spiritual apathy and laziness that prevents spiritual development. What are the marks of spiritual immaturity? Well, he mentions there in verse number 11 that dullness, that spiritual apathy towards the Word of God. He says in verse number 12, another mark of spiritual immaturity, for when, for the time, ye ought to be teachers. Ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. He is saying, how long have you been saved? And instead of you leading people to the Lord and discipling them, you're running people off because you don't have any desire for God. And instead of you investing in people and reproducing, you're in need of being discipled all over again. What is a mark of spiritual immaturity? It is one that is on a baby food diet. 
The milk of the Word. It refers to what Jesus Christ did on earth. His birth, His life, His teaching, His death, His burial and resurrection. When He talks about the meat of the Word, notice in verse number 13, for everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the Word of of righteousness, rather, for he is a babe. In other words, he, He only knows about the death, burial, and resurrection. All He knows is I'm saved and how you can get saved. But verse 14, but strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of of use, use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. He says the maturest adult never outgrows milk as believers, yet we can still learn much from the Lord's work, but we must not stop. It's like the ABCs and, and K4 and K5, they're learning their ABCs. But you get to 11th and 12th grade to college and, and, and postgraduate work, they're not done with the ABCs. They're still using them. They're just using them with bigger words. They're just using them in, in, in longer books. You never get beyond the milk of the word, or you, you never get done with the milk of the word, rather, but we ought to be moving on. We must not stop with just how to get saved. We must continue into why we got saved. We must not just park with the fact that heaven's going to be a wonderful place. We ought to be exercising our senses to be able to experience the one who is going to take us to heaven someday. He's talking about being skillful versus those who are unskillful in using the word. And notice what he says in chapter 6. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptism, laying on of the hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal, eternal judgment. And this will we do if God permit. But what does he say in verse 1? Let's go on to maturity. Let's move on from where we are. God delivered his people from Egypt for what purpose? To move on into the promised land. Instead, they just hunkered down 40 years, wandered around in a wilderness. I think a lot of churches ought to change their name to Wilderness Baptist Church because they've just hunkered down. They'll sing the, the songs about heaven instead of just getting there. That's why tell you the the blessing of of being able to go through this experience in God is to recognize we don't have to wait till we get to heaven I'm so thankful of salvation but God has more in store let's look at another one the word of God is as a sword that pierces. We're in Hebrews. Let's just look over at Hebrews 4 and verse 12. For the word of God is, what's the word? Quick. That's alive. And, what is it? And sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Ephesians 6 and verse 17, we went through the armor some time ago. And we saw that the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. It's one of the offensive weapons. 
See, the word of God is described as a sword that pierces. It's not a Q-tip that tickles. I think people just want a Bible message that will just tickle their gizzard. But it's a word that is divine. It comes from above. It's not originated from us, from God himself. And there's been a whole lot of sermonettes that have been preached. And what do sermonettes produce? Christianettes. And God's wanting to dig deeper. It's, this is an alive book. It's been said that the Bible is more up to date than tomorrow's newspaper. And even though we don't have too many of those anymore. We may get tired. We may need sleep. But the Bible never needs to sleep. The Bible doesn't rest, but it continues working while we're in bed. And long after our death, even, there's no dull side in the Bible. There's not a blunt verse in all the Word of God. Every verse in the entire Bible is razor sharp and can cut deep. The Bible cuts through excuses and facades and cuts to the core of the inner person, getting to the bottom of one's life. Other books may inflict flesh wounds, but this book, it gets down to the organs, all the way to the heart and to the soul. The Bible judges perfectly and it renders the divine verdict. It can judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Bible can judge what only the reader knows about themselves and even things we don't even know about ourselves. The Word of God strips us down and it makes us naked before God. Hebrews 4 and verse 13. It allows us to see ourselves for the very first time as God sees us. The Bible renders the death blow to pride, self-righteousness, arrogance, self-sufficiency, and self-flattery. The Bible, the Bible, no one will ever be saved apart from it. From such heart-rending conviction and exposure of the soul before God. To leave one in the sense of conviction, of sin and desperate, dire need of the Savior. The Word of God. The sword is the offensive weapon of God that He provides us. Hebrews 4.12, it talks about how it can get down into the inner man. You and I were cut to the heart if we're saved. As Acts 2 and verse 37 and Acts 5 and verse 33 reads, when the word of God convicted us of our sins. Remember, Peter tried to use the sword to defend Jesus in the garden, but he learned at Pentecost the sword of the Spirit is a lot more powerful than the sword that came from his side. Moses also tried to conquer with a physical sword in Exodus chapter 2, only to discover that God's word alone was more than enough to defeat Egypt. See, a material sword pierces the body, but the word of God pierces the heart. I'm trying to get you to understand why we put the emphasis where God puts the emphasis. It's upon the Bible. The more we use a physical sword, the duller it becomes. But the more you use God's word, it only makes it sharper in our lives. The physical sword requires the hand of a soldier, but the sword of the spirit has its own power. For it's the living, powerful word of God. Why? Well, he wrote it. The spirit of God wrote it. The spirit wields the sword and the word as we take it by faith and we use it. Remember we saw last week Jesus when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness? Christ used the sword of the Spirit. He defeated the enemy. Three times Jesus said what words? 
It is written. And he told him what was written. Now, remember this. Satan can also quote the word of God, for he did. He can say, for it is written. But he doesn't quote it completely. He takes it out of context. And Satan will try to use the word of God to confuse us. So it's important that we know every word that God has given to us. Someone said, you can prove anything by the Bible. And that might be true. If you take the verses out of context, leave out words, apply verses to various things that, that God did not intend. But the better you know your Bible, the easier it will be for you to detect Satan's lies and reject his offers. Let me give you another metaphor. And looking at the value of the Word of God, our Bible is a fire that consumes. It's a fire that consumes. Would you take your Bible and go to Jeremiah chapter 23? In Jeremiah chapter 23. You still hanging in there? Amen. All right. Jeremiah chapter 23. And we give you two more. A fire that con consumes. And then the last one, number seven, is a hammer that shatters. And so Jeremiah 23, we'll look at this for both of them. Jeremiah 23 and verse number 29. Is not my word like as a, what's the word? Fire. Saith the Lord. And like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces. See, this fire consumes. It burns up all that it comes into contact with. And, it, it, and what it's referring to, I believe, is the, those that might be resisting the Word of God. The context to me is Jeremiah 23, and it's clear. Verse number 25, whether it is prophets who prophesy falsely, or prophets, verse 26, who speak out of the deception of their own heart. Or prophets, verse 27, who make God's people forget God's name. Or prophets, verse 28, who relate their dreams that have nothing to do with God's word. Or prophets as a whole, contrary to the word of God, the, the miracles, the message of God. And so what we find is in verse 30, 31, and 32, God is against these prophets. And so verse 24, God will consume these prophets and those who will follow them. Listen, God promises judgment and punishment for all that is not built on God's word. The message that we preach will either cause people to be blessed or cause people to be burned. It will cause them to either be on fire or cause them to be burned. They will either be on fire for God or they're going to be in the fire of God's judgment. And there is no mediating position in between. And so it's vitally important that you understand that those that may reject and resist and get stubborn, they may think, well, it's my right. I do my thing. I do it my way. Well, you never do anything, especially if you're a child of God, that is resisting God's word without the fire of God's word burning you. 
What God wants to do is he wants to burn up that which is causing your resistance and put you on fire for God. If you don't get on fire for God, then God's word is not going to just leave you alone. God's word is going to burn because it's a fire that consumes Then the seventh tonight. The word of God is a hammer. It's a hammer that shatters. In verse 29, he says in the first part, It's not my word like it's a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces. There's no force in the world that compares with the shattering force of the word of God to overcome all resistance in the day of his power. Little weak men can stand in the pulpit with a sledgehammer of the word of God and bring the force of God's word to bear upon a heart that is resistant and it can shatter pride. It can crush and smash self-righteousness and arrogance and apathy. People are like a rock. They're hard-headed. Their foreheads are like a, a flint. They've, they've set their face and they're not going to budge. They are, as the Bible describes, uncircumcised in heart. And they have a heart of stone that's resistant to the truth of God. Their lives and their hearts are unresponsive to the things of God. They're spiritually apathetic. How will they ever be brought to humility before the throne of grace? It is by, it's by this invincible weapon, this hammer of God's word. No wonder false teachers are so popular. The sinful human heart doesn't want to be burned. Doesn't want to be broken by the authority of God. It prefers the chaff. Even the chaff gives no nourishment. Be sure that the people who give you spiritual counsel, who tell you what they think you should do, you better make sure they're called by God. They are placed in your life authoritatively by the authority of God's word. They walk with God. They obey God's word, not in part, not in the convenient places, but as a whole. Because false prophets, according to Jeremiah 23, they dream and their dreams eventually will become nightmares in your life. I call you today and I challenge Canaan Baptist Church in your own life to wield the sword, to hold forth the mirror, to scatter the seed, to drink the milk, to hold up the lamp, to spread the flame, to swing the hammer. And in your life, wake up to the secular wisdom, cancel the entertainment, Fire the dramatic experiences and get rid of the, the and, and our mindset of what church ought to be. Get rid of the, the stick, the, the colored lights, the smoke, the, 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 the programs to bring in the, the power of God. No, no. We need to maintain the pulpit while people are, get, churches are getting rid of their pulpits. And we need to maintain an open Bible while people are putting aside their Bibles. And we need to lift it up. We need to let it out and we need to let it fly. It is the invincible, the inerrant, the infallible, the wonderful word of Almighty God. Let's stand together, please.